before we go much further, we're going to answer. Well, it depends on where you're from in Israel. We can have a tea, Hanukkah. It's always pronounced with an R, as in like chalk. has a chalk in it. Hanukkah. Uh, but a lot of times we'll spell it with just an H. Um, when you come across a name in your Hebrew Bible like uh, uh, Ahmed uh, in Hebrew, it has a hard CH, so it will sound like Ahmed. And so we see that in when we look at the Arabic television, the Arabic names that come across nowadays, and but that's very prevalent in Jewish life as well. And so you can see that in Hanukkah, which is there. What does Hanukkah mean? It actually means dedication. Hakda, and of course, Nakah means the dedication. The dedication. That's what it is. It's a feast of dedication. It's sometimes called the feast of life. And it's a very special holiday. It represents a lot of what we're going to experience and what we have experienced as a church. So, if you will look with me in John chapter 10, let's look at verses 22 and 23. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. That's because that's when Hanukkah comes. It always comes in either the late November or the middle of December. It comes in the Hebrew month of Kislev, uh, usually around the 25th of Kislev. Uh, sounds familiar, like the 25th of December here, right? And it comes at that time frame, 25th of Kislev. Lasts for eight days and eight nights. So Jesus walked in the temple in Shalomo's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I told you, do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me that you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. So Hanukkah is in the gospel. But if you're here to come, you know, and you want to say, Josh, I want to learn how to celebrate Hanukkah, or I want to learn why I should celebrate Hanukkah, you're here for the wrong reason. Because I'm not here to convince you all that. I'm not here to teach you saying uh, Christians should celebrate Hanukkah. No, no, no. Christians should learn about Hanukkah, though, and we should learn a little bit about it. So Hanukkah is that feast of dedication, and Hanukkah is to celebrate what happened so many years ago. And so with that being said, I'm going to go ahead and show you what the eighth night of Hanukkah would look like, and then uh, as a lighting of it, and then I'm going to go through and explain to you why they light it and how Jesus is reflected in that. And I'm going to show to you uh, how Christ is portrayed in that. So this is, you might call it a menorah, but it's not. It's a Hanukkah. An actual menorah only has seven branches. You can come up closer if you want. You take all the pictures you want, anything of that nature. So this one's a Hanukkah. We'll actually have it backwards here. There we go. So it's a Hanukkah. And there's nine on this instead of seven. You ever wondered why? If you ever looked at them and said, there's you know, nine branches and seven branches of north. So the actual menorah is seven. This is a Hanukkah. And the candle in the middle is a little bit taller than all the others. And that's called, this one's called the Shamak. The Shamak means servant. This light doesn't count. It does, but it doesn't. This is the light that lights all the other candles. If you have other traditional Hanukkahs, they look more like this. And some of the more modern ones will actually be a straight bar with one up high and eight down below it. Uh, and that's also a Hanukkah. Now, uh, as my Jewish brothers would gather together to light the Hanukkah, they would start by lighting the Shammah. Now, it's not quite as dedicated as, say, Passover or some of the other ones would be. But then they would pray by covering their eyes. 
And they would pray like this. They'd say, Blessed are you, O Lord our God. You are King of the universe. You have sanctified us with your commandments. You have commanded us to kindle the Hanukkah light. And then they would have a series of other blessings that would be pronounced the same way, except for in the end they would say, uh, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who performed great miracles in this day. And then the final blessing would be, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brought us to this time. And with the Shomach, they would begin lighting the candles. They always light them from right to left. Does anybody know why? Because Hebrew is what? Red is right to left. So they would light it this way. Uh, on the first night, this would be the one and only candle I'd light. The rest of these would be empty except for the Shomach. Now we're pretending this is the eighth night, so they're going to light them like this. And each one may bring great joy. Each one may bring a blessing, depending on the tradition in your house. And each one is supposed to be seen directly from a window. So if you participate in Hanukkah, your Hanukkah or menorah would have to go to a window so everyone can see that. Uh, perhaps at Christmas time you've seen some of those Christmas candles that look very much like a menorah and they're always put in a window and that is the reason why. I grew up thinking that Hanukkah was the Jewish Christmas. It's true. Most of us did. We thought of it that way. But it's not a Christmas at all. Even though it does have some gifts in it, it's really got some interesting foods in it. And we'll talk about those in just a second. Uh, they're really unhealthy foods too, so they're really friendly for Baptist churches. Amen? Really unhealthy and oriented foods, and we'll get into the reason why. So let's get the background of what's going on here with this menorah, okay, or with this Hanukkah. Well, uh, just to give a quick lesson in history, let's go back to the year 333 BCE. Anybody know what's happening here? Alexander is conquering the world at this time. Alexander the Great is conquering most of the known world, and he's sending back everything he learned to his teacher. Anybody know who, who uh, Alexander's teacher is? Starts with A. Aristotle. Very good. He's sending back everything he finds and saying, you didn't talk about this in class. He didn't talk about this when I was growing up. And so, as he's, as he's sending these things back, eventually, he comes across an area that is highly contested. Jerusalem. I mean, it is highly contested. Well, of course, he wins the, the battle, actually wins it relatively easy, and sets up Greek rule there. This goes on for approximately 200 years until Alexander's death in well, Alexander dies in 323 B.C., but uh, his, his, if you're familiar with, with the prophet Daniel, in chapter 12, it talks about this leopard kingdom uh, being broken up into four different animals, four tribes, and we're going to only be concerned with two of those, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. And so during this time frame, a mean and vicious Greek comes to the throne named Antiochus Epiphanes and Antiochus IV. Please don't say Antiochus, it's Antiochus, okay? Antiochus IV. Uh, Antiochus is a Hellenist, that he embraces Greek Hellenism. What is Greek Hellenism? Hellenism is a culture uh, where they decided that, in fact, he actually makes an edict that every other group would have to let go of their culture and embrace Hellenism. Hellenism is Greek thought. It's Greek thought. Anybody know where Helen comes from? Well, you read a story about it called the Iliad. Anybody familiar with the Helen of Troy? Hellenism. Very good. 
That's where it comes from. And the reason why is because she's beautiful and she has culture and it becomes part of the Greek culture there, right? Hellenism. And that's what it gets into getting called that way to honor her. With that being said, uh, Antiochus means make the decree that everybody must give up their culture, everybody must embrace Hellenism, Greek philosophy, and all your culture must now be outlawed. That means that all the Jews had to get rid of their Torah form. They told us the Bible, y'all. They had to get rid of them. They had to burn them. Circumcision was punishable by death. How many of you know that at the commandment of God, you were circumcised your male children on the eighth day? So if you got caught circumcising your children, he would kill you. And let me tell you, he was pretty heinous in how he killed the, the Jews. He would actually take the circumcised child, hang it from the mama's neck, and push them over a cliff so they would both die. He's pretty, pretty brutal in what he did. Um, so all kinds of, of Jewish customs were outlawed. In fact, Hellenism embraced a Greek culture of health. They had uh, uh, gymnasiums built. They actually had one built on the Temple Mount. Uh, and, of course, Greeks, they don't just, uh, they don't just compete in, you know, like, like we do today. We have the NFL get out and compete in uniforms. Greeks compete in uh, other ways. It was, it was sacrilegious to Jewish people. It was, it was quite an abomination to them to see them compete unclothed. And so uh, they also really promoted healthy eating, you know, because they wanted to be at their highest peak of physical competition. So they were constantly worried about their weight, worried about their physical stature, worried about how they looked. It was a big part of Hellenism. The Jews, on the other hand, well, you know, Baptists are descended from Jews, but like this. And so, and so uh, they, were, they were more interested in, in being happy. And happy, uh, how many of you know sometimes good food and good song and a good fellowship at the table, sometimes all the home needs, amen? And, you know, uh, so that they were interested in, in other foods. And, of course, those foods became outlawed. And so to this day, when you celebrate Hanukkah, you don't eat anything healthy. You eat potato pancakes, latkes, or latkes, and they are extremely greasy. You eat jelly donuts. Thank God. Amen? And those, <laughs> those are the things that, that they will celebrate Hanukkah with, and that's why. And so Hanukkah does grow a little bit, and I want, I'll get into the culture of it a little bit more. But let me continue on with the stories here. This went on, like I said, for about, altogether, about 100-plus years until the Jews just... Uh, when a type of epiphany came, and he, uh, you might know what epiphany means. You ever had an epiphany in your life? That means God in the flesh. And uh, Antiochus actually called himself the epiphany, meaning I'm, I'm God in the flesh. And the Jews would make fun of him and change his name to Antiochus Epimony, which means madman. And yeah, of course, they, he got they got caught saying that they got killed, you know. Uh, but eventually, a aged old priest named Mariyaku. Mariyaku, or you might say Matthias. He actually sees a young Jew embrace the Hellenistic homosexual lifestyle. And when that happens, he becomes zealous for the Torah, which is very biblical, picks up a, a javelin or a spear and runs that that uh, heritage, if you will, through. And of course, he then goes out into the woods. Now, the Maccabees, that's the name of his family, uh, Mattiahu Maccabee, and Maccabee is Hebrew for the hammer. That's what that means, the hammer. 
you ever heard of the Hebrew hammer or anything of that nature? That's, that's the Jewish hammer. That's what that is. Uh, my name is a derivative of Maccabees, which is really cool. Of course, I'm not really a hammer guy. You know? uh, but it's true. Um, then as they came out into the wilderness, they were kind of hillbilly like. They were. The, the Maccabees were. But Mariahu actually says, if you want to be on God's side, come with us. And they got some volunteers now. Of course, I'm paraphrasing. They got some volunteers, but their army was pathetic. It was very, very, very small. They had no chance against the Greek seasoned army. Remember, they had been fighting the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid Empire, and not to mention the other two uh, Greek generals that broke off of Alexander's empire. And they're fighting for control. You may have heard of Cleopatra. She actually takes over the Egyptian side. She's not uh, Egyptian at all. She's actually Greek. And so, but they're just all fighting in those four kingdoms, in, in the fighting here. The Jews are caught right in the middle of it. So Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, says, you've got to start being Greek. I can't stand this difference in my kingdom. And so, Mariahu leads a rebellion. It's a very small and insignificant rebellion, but it starts to grow. It does. It starts to grow. Well, Antiochus gets angry at what happened there, and he marches his army into Jerusalem, and he desecrates the temple. He goes up to the Jewish Temple Mount. We're talking the Holy of the Holies, the Holy Place, and the Court of the Gentiles, and he desecrates it with Greek idols. He sets up the main ones. Anybody know the, the main god of the Greeks? Zeus. Sets them up right where the Ark of the Covenant should be. Not only that, he goes into the Holy Place where the, the, the uh, altar of burnt offering would be, and he sacrifices a pig on it, which is extremely unkosher, extremely unclean, and extremely, it's an abomination. In fact, it is a picture of what happens. And you read about something very similar that Jesus says is going to happen uh, in Matthew 24. It's the exact same thing that happened in the Maccabean Revolt. And so they desecrate the temple. They completely defile every room in it, and they destroy everything in it. They dedicate it to the Greek gods and they turn it into a gymnasium. This is the, the temple, the temple. This is Solomon's temple. Of course, the Jews run out into the woods and they begin a guerrilla style warfare for approximately 100 years. Mattathias gets old and he dies, and his son, Yehuda, Judah, takes over. Yehuda is actually the one that wins political independence, not complete independence but political independence, about 165 B.C. About 165, somewhere in that area, 163 or 165. Uh, he wins it there. And how he does that is through his guerrilla campaign and through another miracle, he, they win a decisive victory over those Greeks at Jerusalem, winning, uh, like I said, some political independence for Jerusalem and religious independence. They win the temple back. And they go into the temple and they find this now dedicated temple to the Greek God. It is completely profane. Completely profane. In church, they start to scour it. They take hot water and brushes and clean the filth from the top to the bottom of every single room. But they cannot be in a Jewish temple. You can't light it with you know, an electric drop light. It has to be lit with a biblically mandated light. Anybody know what it is? Olive oil. Remember, it had to be beaten cleaned and coached it, it would go in the menorah, the menorah. And it would, that's how they, they lit that lamp. And they found one vial of oil. And it would have put in all seven branches for approximately one day. But miraculously, it burned for 
eight days, and that's exactly how long it took to clean the temple, which is why you have feast of life today. Now I need you to understand why Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world because the Jews are still saying the menorah is the light of the world. And that's why Jesus corrects them and says, I am the light of the world. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in just a second. So after the Jews win that independence, they get their temple clean, they go to the altar of burnt offerings that had a pig sacrificed on it and a statue of, of Zeus and Athena set up on it. They don't know what to do with this altar. They break it up. Remember, according to the Bible, it has to be rocks, right? Unshaped rocks. And they got a, a bronze surface on top of it, and all the rocks are unshaped. So they just break it up. Altar down. They burn the the bronze down and refashion it into a new surface. But they take these rocks and now have all this swine blood over it and they take it and they dump it into the court of the winner. Which is exactly where Jesus is walking through on the triumphal entry when they start saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And of course they run up and say, Master and Rabbi, tell your disciples to quit saying that. And Jesus says, they don't say it for very hot that they ought to be saying it. How do I know that? Because history one and two, uh, the book of First Maccabees actually tells us if you have a book of Maccabees with you that they break down the altar and they place it in the court of the gen- court of the women, saying when the prophet, if you read Greek, it's the prophet, meaning the Messiah and Shiach, when the prophet comes, he'll tell us what to do with it. And there is exactly what Jesus says. If I don't, if you guys don't cry out down the Messiah. The rocks. Yeah. Interesting thought there. Uh, and every Jew to this day gets captivated by that. It's an interesting experience. So, what's going on here with our menorah? These candles are different colors. Of course, each one's there for a celebration, for joy. Uh, they're made out of beeswax, so they want them to kosher candles. Uh, though you can use birthday candles. Birthday candles are kosher as well, incidentally. But not every candle is kosher. What makes one kosher? What's one makes one not one kosher? Well, it depends on how they're made and what they're infused with. Uh, a lot of candles are made out of fat or lard, and of course, you can't have a a pig candle, right? Can't have something like that, you know. Uh, Jello is not kosher because it's made out of marrow that comes out of a usually out of pigs. Now, you can get kosher Jello, but it's made out of beef marrow. Then, so there's interesting things out there, uh, and a lot of things to think about. And so. Uh, as you're doing Hanukkah, uh, think about their lifestyle, how it changed like that, how their life came to a screeching halt when somebody showed up and said, you can't practice your religion anymore, you can't worship to God anymore, and you can't have your life anymore. In fact, you're going to embrace our life, or we're going to kill you. It's called religious persecution. So I want to share with you a few things. Did you know, of course, Hanukkah is in the gospel. Hanukkah is not mentioned in the Hebrew Scriptures because the story of Hanukkah happened after the last book of the Tanakh. And that's the Hebrew Scriptures that had been written. However, Hanukkah is mentioned in the New Testament and Jesus went to the temple for the feast of Hanukkah. We can read in John chapter 10, which we just did, that Jesus was in Solomon's colonnade for the feast of dedication, which is another name for Hanukkah. Remember in John 10, 22 and 23. Also, did you know that Hanukkah is a story of religious persecution? Obviously. Jesus tells us we can expect persecution, but he also tells us that we must stand firm 
in our faith. And Hanukkah is the perfect time of year to think about those issues and reflect on how the Maccabees stood up under the harsh persecution because of their faith in honoring God motivated them more than fear did. And with that being said, I have a short video I'd like for you to see, uh, if I can, on uh, the Maccabees. Did we get that up there yet, guys? All right. Enjoy it. Feel free to laugh. I'll tell a tale, tell, 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 yeah. Of the Maccabees in Israel, L, 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 yeah. When the Greeks tried to tell, 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 But it was all to no avail, bell, 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 yeah, yeah. The war went on and on and on until the mighty Greeks were gone, yeah. I put my locket in the air sometimes, saying, hey. I'm going to show you one more in just a second, but uh, I want to take just a, a minute to bring something well, up. Well, if it's a speculative or just science. Um, 
they were spinning something called the dreidel. And that's what this is here. This one will belong to uh, the Wiseman family when I'm done with this here. Um, there is one more in my office I'd like to give away. If you might be interested in that, it's all yours if you want to come by and say, Brother Josh, I want it when you die. Um, where did this come from? This didn't come from the Macedonian Gaul. It didn't. This was made famous during the Holocaust in the ghetto Nicodemus. Because just like the Macedonian Gaul, the Nazis did not allow the Jews to celebrate anything as well. They took the memorial, they took everything away. So they still celebrated Hanukkah and they made these out of clay. Right off the ground, they were moving them with sticks. And uh, you can think about a time when Jesus did something with sticks and clay. And they put the Hebrew letters on it, and each one is the first letter of a word that says a great miracle happened then. You can imagine during the Holocaust, their prayer for another great miracle. Think about that. I mean, that's why that became so famous. Of course, the Nazis didn't find that to be threatening until this day. When they go through and look in some of the ghettos that are still uh, up in museums, they still find hidden dreidels on occasion and things like that. That's what that came from. That's what got really popular at. Uh, it was before that time frame, but uh, it became really popular during the Holocaust for that reason. Now, this one is uh, actually a well made dreidel, and if you want to spin it, you've got to really put some. Elbow grease on it to make it go. Other than that, it won't go very hard at all. All right, uh, so how is that relevant to Christianity? That's really the big question, isn't it? And so I want to share with you something, uh, and I quoted from the earlier from Matthew 24, where Jesus says, Hey, there's going to be a time when there's an abomination of the desolation. And by the way, it's exactly what happened at the time of the, the Maccabees during Hanukkah also. Exactly what happened, and it did happen again in the year 70 A.D. And I believe it will happen again. And so there's a picture that we have here. If Hanukkah could happen before Jesus, and the Roman general Titus in the year 70 A.D. comes in and sets up a brand new statue to Zeus, where the Ark of the Covenant should be, and sacrifice a sow on the altar of burnt offerings, and remove all the Jews from Jerusalem after Christ. What's left to come? Think about it. Think about it. We have the pictures there, and I want you to see. And that's what Hanukkah is all about. In fact, you can't understand the Revelation until you understand Hanukkah. And you can't understand Hanukkah until you understand the Revelation. They are linked. And they are, without a doubt, connected. And with that being said, let's show that second video. This one's a little more... A little more funny, I guess.
let me do a word of explanation on the letters that are in here. Like I said, before it stands for first word of a great miracle happened here. Um, so in the song, they talk about you spend a noon, you get none, or spend a nun, you get none. Um, they, they um, used to gamble during the Holocaust with their food, with little they had. And of course, the tradition still continues on. Nowadays, when I actually did it with my inmates in the prison, I let them gamble candy, uh, little peppermint crisps. You know, but you have a question. No. And so, um, when you got to the hay, then of course you got half the hot. If you got the shin, then you had to put one in. And when you got the gmil, that stands for gadol, the great. That's what gadol means. Uh, great, a great word right there. Gadol. When you got the gadol, you got everything in the pot, right? So that's that's how they did that there. And to this day, they still go around. I remember the first Hanukkah uh, I facilitated as, as it took a part in. Uh, being a Christian, I just sat there like this. You know, as I watched it, and they celebrated. I mean, they got up, danced, and, and had a blast uh, with Hanukkah. Now, uh, in today's Hanukkah celebrations, my Jewish brothers and sisters they use it as an excuse to get abominably drunk. To be honest, it's like a St. Patrick's Day celebration or a, a Mardi Gras kind of celebration. But really, deep down inside, it has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with what God did in the temple. And God did a great miracle. And so how does that pertain to Christians? Well, number one is if they had religious persecution in those days, and the Jews had religious persecution in the 40s and in the 50s, and, and I mean, you've got to see the picture here. If before Jesus Christ we could have a Titus Epiphany, after Jesus Christ we can have Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin, what's coming next is the actual Antichrist. And we need to think about those things and be ready for those things, to be in prayer about those things. As Jesus gives us a warning and He gives us the word on how we can be assured in those things. Uh, and I believe the story of the Maccabees is a picture of God overcoming at great odds, an uncomable odds. You don't understand how small Judah's army was. I mean, it was like Gideon-sized army. Remember when, when God took the Gideons and won, uh, once again, independence from the Philistines? Uh, once again, the, the Maccabees won that kind of, of victory. It was miraculous. There was no reason for them to win at all. Not just once, but twice. And then, of course, the miracle of life was how they knew God was with them. It wasn't just a fluke. It wasn't just an accident. No, no, the menorah burned for eight whole days. And when, of course, they quit scouring the temple, then, of course, the menorah went out. But by then, they've also made a fresh supply of oil. It would actually take eight days to make the next set of coats for oil and keep it going. That one vial burns for eight days. It's a miracle there. You read about it in the book of First Maccabees. But I want to caution you. First Maccabees is not scripture. It doesn't have the authority. The Bible has. But it is interesting history. And so, if you get a chance to read it, I recommend you read it. But leave it at that as history. Yes, ma'am. It is not in the Torah. It's actually in something called Jewish Integrity Writing or Jewish Apocryphal, uh, or Biblical Text there. So it's that there it's accepted to them as history. And it is mostly historically correct. There's one or two places that we can test where the battle happened, where the, the book of the first Maccabees says it happened at. And so uh, historically, I don't know if they've actually corrected that or if they, we found out archaeology has been wrong. Like most of the things we find out in the Bible, archaeologically, the Bible ends up proving itself true. Uh, even though we might think, well, archaeologically it's wrong, but when we start looking in detail, we find out that the Bible's true. In fact, let me just be honest with you, the Bible's 100% correct. You can trust it. 
you can take it to the bank. It's inspired, it's infallible, and it's in air, and you can believe it. Uh, now, I'm not putting the book of First Maccabees on that level now, and I would never do that. Uh, but it is interesting reading, and it does give us some of that history of what happened in between there. There's 400 years in between the prophet Malachi and the opening of the, let's say, the first gospel mark. 400 years happens there. And a lot of things happen there. Most people think God's completely quiet. He's not. God was doing a lot of things and saying a lot of things and performing miracles such as Hanukkah and such as those other uh, other miracles that happened in there. So there's a lot of books that are written there and some of them aren't worth the, the paper they're written on. Some of them uh, have to talk a lot about Jewish history and where Jews came from. And they're neat to learn, but they're no, nowhere near the authority of Scripture. I would never, ever put those up there for that. All right, uh, but I do want to share something else with you that's really, really, really neat. I know I'm running out of time again. Um, so, does the Bible ever talk about Hanukkah in another way? Well, it does, actually. And so, I'm going to skip over a lot of the things I had for you. Let's turn to John chapter 1. And I'm going to share with you something really neat here. John chapter 1. And let's just take a look if uh, you're Jewish, when you read John chapter 1, what it says to you. Now, we like to look at the Gospel of John with a, a, a Greek mindset, if you will. We really do with a Western mindset. And this is not written to a Western audience. It's written to a Jewish or Middle Eastern audience. And it was written within the mind. And John was no exception. John wrote to his uh, listeners and to those who thought would be reading it, uh, he expressed his Jewish thought, his Jewish uh, culture. And so let's take a look at that. Right here. Let's look in, in, in chapter 1 and verse 1. The Bible says, In the beginning was the Word. And notice the Word is capitalized, which is correct. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things are made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Look at verse 5. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness did not. My Bible says comprehended. Yours might say darkness did not understand it. Either one is correct. Uh, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, a martyrion, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, meaning John was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. I just spent some detail talking to you all about how they would say the menorah was the light of the world. But what are we reading here? We're reading about the Jews saying, hey, here's the real life. So I want to suggest something to you. We've all heard it enough. But sometimes it bemoans us. You know, the poor state of Joseph and Miriam, is how you say her name in Hebrew. Joseph and Mary, who were forced to give birth to the Mashiach, to the Messiah, in an animal stall. <laughs> because there's no room in the end, right? That's because we're looking at it through modern eyes. We want to look at it through Western eyes. Somehow or another, we get the idea that Joseph and Mary are walking through ancient Jerusalem and they get up to the Motel 6 and they didn't leave a light on that night. And there's no room for them, so there was a kindness to them. says, you can go into my barn and give birth to a baby there. <laughs> Even in those years, that was not really kind, was it? Think about it. I don't know. There's a lot going on there. And uh, some sermons coming up, when we look into the character of Joseph, 
and we look into the character of Miriam, we'll look into uh, what's happening here in some of our Sunday sermons. I don't want to steal any of that thunder, but I want you to, to think about how, how that story is ingrained in our heads. In fact, I wish I had brought a traditional Christmas manger with me. Three sizes. Always has been, have not Why is that? Because it's not a Western manger. But we never hear from the pulpit of our traditional Christian churches is that although the Greek word which we derive the word manger correctly we derive from the Hebrew word for not hut, animal, but sukkah. Sukkah. Sukkah is what you use when you celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. Or in Hebrew, Sukkot. That's how you say sukkah, plural. Sukkot. Feast of Tabernacles. After all, the couple were journeying across Israel, not Greece. Rather than a squalid hut thrown of animal droppings, the sukkah was certainly built in anticipation of the resurrection of Jesus. You might know why the sukkahs were built in the Old Testament. God commanded you to build one in those 40 years. And you had to stay in them every night. And every night as you built that sukkah, you saw something. Do you might know what they saw? They were there. They never departed from them. What was it? The Shekinah. Right? You might say Shekinah, but Shekinah. Of God. You saw it. It was there. There was a pillar of fire and a pillar of clouds, right? There was also the manna coming down, the quail coming in. And you got to see that while living in your sukkah. To this day, when the Feast of Tabernacles comes around, Jews go out of the house and they build a sukkah outside. My family built one for seven years. It's part of my commitment, and I'll not relevant. I'll tell you about why I did those things. Uh, I made a commitment to the Jewish people. I was leading, and I was able to lead the majority of them to see Jesus Christ. Thank God. Uh, but uh, I lived that way for them for seven years. And I wore the deep jeans and the kippah or the yarmulke, you were called yarmulke, all those years. And I did it. And I led them to Christ. And I learned so much because of that. But uh, we built one, and it was commanded to build them for at least that seven days of, of Sukkot. And when you're there, you are anticipating when you go into your sukkah every night to eat dinner, you're anticipating looking out and seeing the Shekinah of God again. And I suggest to you that Luke chapter 2 gives us the Shekinah and you appearing and the angels appear great glory saying, glory to God in the highest on earth. Goodwill men and the angels and the shepherds saw They were anticipating it because it was in place. So, if that's the case, when might have Christ been conceived? Well, let's just backtrack a little bit. We never hear from the pulpit of our traditional Christian churches that although the Greek word from which we derive the word manger should correctly be derived from the Hebrew word for a hut of animals, which is a sukkah, or in plural form, sukkot, after all, the couple were journeying across Israel, not Greece. And rather, the squalid hut throwing of animal droppings, the sukkah was certainly built in anticipation of the revelation of the Shekinah, the radiant glory of God. In all likelihood, the light of the world was conceived in the feast of the flesh. What light? And that's what you're reading here. John chapter 1, it actually tells you in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
and the white came to the cloud. And then he was born nine months later. He was the promise of God. I didn't say that. The Bible says that. If you're a Jewish, you need to read that again. By the world was probably the Hanukkah on the 25th day of Kislev at the beginning of the festival of light and this would result in the sun of the tabernacle like the Bible tells us in John 1 look at here in verse 14 and the word became flesh and my Bible says dwelt among us but if you read Greek it says he tabernacled with us another reference to when he was born when he came at that moment he tabernacled with us on the feast of tabernacles or the coat in the fall during this great festival, all Israel dwelt in Sukkah, of course, for eight days. These temporary structures are built with three walls, like you see the manger. I don't have one up here, but like you normally see the manger. We had that much light originally, we just forgot over the years. These temporary structures built with three walls and a fat roof. This was to allow the people inside to see the Shekinah, when it appeared, and they did. The festival is a remembrance of Israel wandering in the wilderness, rowing in a simple shelter, led by the Shekinah. And so the innkeeper sacrificed the place where his kids would have camped out, where his wife would have served their meals, and where they would have entertained guests each night with his Jewish tradition. This was the blessing of a true king. And exchange, this hut built to see the radiant glory of God, revealed was the very place where the glory of God was revealed for all of us. So the next time you see him away in a manger, you might have a different meaning with this. It is. Booth Tabernacle is that thing. Very good. Very good. It's just a, some uh, old English word we use. The tabernacles we, we put in booth. Uh, to another example, we had another old English word, a uh, song of songs, right? Somebody know what we used to call that? If you have an old Bible, we called it the Song of Solomon. But even before that, we called it the, let's go to see, canticles, right? Anybody remember those? And so, uh, the canticles, yeah, they're, 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 as you, you know, you were the the, the contour, the one who sang it out, right? Uh, so the old word, the Feast of Booths is that old word for tabernacles or, or uh, Feast of Tents, or however you want to say it that way. So we have here in John 1, verse 14, we have a reference to the word becoming flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory, the Shekinah, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. All right. So you get a good picture of what Hanukkah is. And so when I was growing up, we said Hanukkah is a Jewish Christmas, and they give away gifts. They give a gift each night, but they eat a lot of latkes. And let me tell you, my seven years of celebrating Hanukkah, I am so sick of latkes and even fire. They are greasy, and they can't, you know, you put some salt and pepper on them, and they taste good, but after that third one, you you can't eat any more than that. Jelly Donuts are good, though, amen? And there's all kinds of special candies and things they give out, and, you know, so... And then, of course, people say, what about matzo ball soup? Well, they don't usually eat that on, lots, on, on, on Hanukkah, but we eat that at Passover time. So that kind of thing, because it's, it's kosher, right? And it's 100% unleavened. Matzo is always unleavened. So, uh, right now, does anybody have any questions? I'm just about out of time. So I said, if you're coming to find out why a Christian should celebrate Hanukkah, you're, you're barking up the wrong tree. Why a Christian should learn about Hanukkah, though, is what it reveals in God's Word to us. So, with that being said, I want you to turn with me to John, excuse me, to Matthew 24, and we'll take a look at a last picture here. And of course, you want to connect it, go to Daniel 12 and read 
about the prophecy of the upcoming Hanukkah uh, fight that they're going to have there with Antiochus Epiphanes, and they do. And, of course, they win as prophesied, and they get the independence back. Look with me in, in Matthew 24 there. Let's take a look at, at Jesus' reference to Hanukkah here. All right. The prophesying the destruction of the temple, which is a direct reference to Hanukkah, if you will, and this is exactly what happened in Hanukkah. So, when Jesus says here, let's take a look at verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Many will be offended, will betray one another, will hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many because lawlessness which is uh, reference to a lot lack of order in this group, will abound. The love of many will grow cold, but he who endorses the end shall be saved, and this doctrine of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and the end will come. Look at verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, and remember that's a reference to what Daniel's talking about there, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. Remember where the holy place is? It's the place right before the holy of the holies, right? And right before the court of the Gentiles. It's the holy place. So inside the holy place, we would have had the table of showbread, right? Incense, right? Uh, we also would have had the altar burnt offerings outside. We might have had the, la- the, the labor with the water in it and things of that nature. But uh, this is what we're talking about. The abomination of this is about Daniel's prophet standing in the holy place. And the Bible gives us a warning here. Whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down and take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Shabbat. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world to this time frame. No, nor ever shall be. And I love verse 22. And unless those days were shortened, meaning they were, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So thank God for that, and thank God for the miracle of Hanukkah, because what that reassures us is that, uh, just like the Maccabees, we're going to win. Amen? Uh, when it comes, we're going to win, and the reason why we're going to win is because greater is He is in us than He that's in the world. Amen? Uh, greater is He that's with us than He could ever be in the world. And so we need to stand firm, stand true, and endure until the end. Uh, you say, Josh, are you expecting... Uh, persecution to happen? I, I do. Actually. I do expect some things like that to happen. Uh, I do believe that. You say, well, Josh, what about the rapture that will come first? I'm not going to argue with anybody on that. You, you are welcome to that uh, thought, and that's okay. I certainly hope it does. Amen? <laughs> I certainly hope it does. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm cool with that hope right there. That's my Christian hope, and I'm going to go on with that. Um, but if it doesn't, we know what's going to happen. We're going to win in the end. All we have to do is stay faithful. We have to stay faithful. And God's going to come through in the end. And He always does. You've read the Revelation. You know what happened. And so if you really want to understand the Revelation, spend some time learning the history of Hanukkah. If you want to understand Hanukkah, spend some time reading the Revelation. They both are very linked in that. And I don't have time to go deeply into that. I apologize for that. Anybody have any questions on Hanukkah tonight? Anything else? Can anybody enjoy that a little bit? Let's close in a word of prayer, and I will see you Sunday morning for Christmas cantata, and I'm excited about that. In fact, because of that, I'm going to have to go to Rome and just close the two church. No, is it?